Marketing success comes from identifying the right opportunities. And sponsoring the Up Next in Commerce podcast might just be the best opportunity you'll hear about today. With tens of thousands of listeners, expert creative, production, and strategic promotion teams at the helm, not to mention millions of impressions at the ready, this is a growth opportunity you should not ignore. Email me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with the Up Next in Commerce team. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of Mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. Ellis McHugh has a long resume that has taken her through the world of e-commerce, supply chain, and venture capital. She worked at Deloitte managing global delivery of ERP systems and directed end-to-end operations for The Gap, and even worked at ZX Ventures, where she managed the global and multinational licensing business for Budweiser, Corona, and Stella Artois. And that's just some of her experience. Now she's the CEO of Territory Foods, where she's trying to make the world better one meal at a time. Hear all about it on today's episode with Ellis McHugh. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. We're excited to chat today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I know this is going to be a great conversation. I did a bit of research, and there's so many places we can go. But I think first, it'd be really helpful for all the listeners and viewers to be able to just know a bit about your background. because. When I looked at it, I'm like, you've literally done every part of e-commerce and commerce. You've been in finance, logistics, supply chain, product, franchises. I mean, it seems like you've been everywhere. So I wanted to hear a bit about your background wherever you want to start. Yeah, I love it. And I have been everywhere. My team always says that I've lived like a thousand lives and that I have a story for everything. So forgive me in advance for telling those stories. I want all of them. Um, let me start from the very beginning. Um, I went to Johns Hopkins University, and I actually studied East Asian Studies, International Studies, double major, and a double minor in history and econ. And the the real story is I just love learning. Like, I'm a forever learner. I'm somebody who, you know, my last semester, I was like, I'm going to take Italian literature and poetry, and oh it, like, gosh. still sticks with me today. Wow. Because I think, you know, in a different world, I would be somebody who would just, like, stay right through, get a PhD in something very non-commercial. But that's not the world we live in. So I did not do that. I graduated uh, in 2008 
right in the middle of the recession. It was a really interesting cultural defining moment for our generation, for my generation. And it was funny because I was doing a ton of internships in like banking and things like that. And Johns Hopkins is a great university, very focused on, are you going to become a surgeon, a doctor, or a researcher? And then, or do you want to be a lawyer? And I thought I wanted to do banking, so I was doing a bunch of banking internships. I had an amazing mentor who actually told me in 2007, he said, don't go into banking. I think this whole thing is about to fall apart. Wow. And Smart. Yeah, it was great, great advice. And so I started interviewing and consulting. And I kind of had this mentality of, I'm a forever learner. And if I can learn Mandarin Chinese at 18 years old, I can probably learn SQL queries. And how hard could it be? And I found Deloitte actually through just like the normal recruiting process, but managed to convince them to let me through the door by basically saying, I can take really technical concepts and I can translate them for you. And I can be a business translator that helps technical concepts and functional people come together. And they took a risk on me. I was the only non-engineer in my starting class. And it was amazing, amazing place to start my career. And I have nothing but love for the group that brought me in because it was a massive risk at a time when not a lot of people were taking financial risks on people, but a great opportunity. And for about six years, I grew my career there, very much focused in what we used to call functional technology consulting. Now the sexy thing to call it is product. Nobody was calling it product then, but this is really when all the ideas around like consumer-led design and how do people actually use systems and why do they use systems are really starting to come out. And I loved it because for someone like me, who's like an always learner and just like a somebody who wraps their arms around concepts, I had so much runway, so much runway to do anything I wanted. And um, everyone was always like, you're going to burn out, you're going to burn out but I really wanted to make my own space at a big organization. And so I think it's that like entrepreneurial vibe from the beginning. I would never have called myself an entrepreneur, but growing up, my dad was a dentist. He ran a dental office. My mother did all of his bookkeeping and ran the office part for him, did the hiring, the managing, everything like that. They never would have called themselves entrepreneurs, but we, we as a family were there every Saturday stuffing envelopes, right? We as a family were there building it. So I think when you grow up with that imprint of, we have to make this work. We are in it together. It like really starts that entrepreneurial vibe early and gives you like a crazy good work ethic also. Yeah. Um, which definitely took me forward in Deloitte. Um, when I was there, I did large scale deployments of Oracle systems, which I will say is like one of the most boring types of technology to do. But for me, why I loved it was because I was always sort of like, why does anybody do this? which made me an interesting consultant and definitely like an interesting person to put in front of the client. But but really why? Like, okay, you're a business and let's say you're a semiconductor tester manufacturer. Why do you need to buy $10 million of Oracle and then customize it $10 million? You know, what, what are you building for yourself? And I started to build this hypothesis on complexity. And I just started to say, you know, in a business, you have as much funding as you have, you have as many resources. If you're going to invest it in building a system, it should be the cleanest, most simple system, unless that system and that complexity provides incremental value to your end customer. And it's really about building that differentiated engine. And for me, because the systems I deployed were largely in finance, supply chain operations, I got to see the guts of systems and the guts of the way the global supply chain worked. And I just fell in love. Like I'm a total supply chain logistics nerd. I love stuff. Full stop. Like I love containers and like the way things move through a factory and like how do you do it faster and how do you do it better and who does the work and what systems. And I think that the physical movement of goods is so powerful. Um, and how do you build the right software for it? And, and what is the point of all this movement? 
So I was at Deloitte for about six years and really grew amazing at like running a team. I had an incredible opportunity to be running a 26-person team by the time I was 26 across a lot of different demographics, different ages, backgrounds, everything like that. Working through the hardest client solutions, building really great systems, selling a ton of work. But when it came down to it, I was like, do I want to be deploying Oracle systems for my entire career? And the answer was no. And so I started to look around and I started to say, you know, what's next for me? And I had moved from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco. And I was in this like amazing crucible of all these like fashion retail companies that are coming up and really the start of D2C and the start of the way that data was starting to flow through these businesses. And with all those cool businesses out there, we're talking like Bonobos, Rothy's, like everything. I chose Gap Inc. <laughs> and I, I love Gap. Yeah, but it's popular was, in the Bay Area for sure. And DC. Oh, it's yeah. very popular. No, yeah. no, not negating the popularity. Yeah, it just wasn't the bonobos and the. It's not yeah, like the I leading edge of e-com, right? And but what was amazing about Gap is first and foremost, very complex supply chain. Five consumer brands at that point, all with different brand teams, all with different design teams, and they were in the middle of a global supply chain changeover to make the whole thing more simple. And how do you leverage the fact that you have a portfolio of five brands to get better costing on all of the inputs and things like that? The thing about Gab is it's almost like Amazon, where it's like you're working at a scale you would never be able to touch otherwise. And it was incredible to me to see just the movement of goods and how everything works globally. I was hired into a very, very interesting part of Gap. It's the franchise business. And so it's the 44 international markets that are not wholly owned by Gap. And this is cool to me because if you want to think about like complexity in the system, basically what Gap has done is said like there's a buyer for Gap brand in Saudi Arabia, but we as Gap brand do not have the proprietary knowledge of how to sell to that customer in the right way. And that could be the location, the staffing, could be the language, it could be the assortment, any of that. And so they go out and they seek best in class franchisees and form a partnership with them. And there is a amazing team that does the business development in the UK, an amazing team that does the merchandising in the US. And it's a really small and nimble part of Gap Inc., which is this larger, bigger organization. And I fell in love with it right off the bat because I, as a consultant, just love problems. And I came into this very big problematic solution because the global supply chain team in San Francisco had made some decisions about the global supply chain that negatively impacted these 44 international markets. And it was like firsthand experience in when your corporate strategy does not match your supply chain strategy and how a business can actually be driven by the logistics cost. I remember my first day I left and I went home and I like cried to my husband. I was like, oh my God, I've made a terrible mistake. Like this is a career ender for me. And he was like, you're here now. <laughs> you can like, figure it out. Like you figure out the hard things, figure it out. And it was the best advice because I just started to say like, let's get a handle on the size of the problem. Let's like document the problem. Let's figure out where the people process or technology needs to be invested. And what I found over covers was actually more of a strategic problem than anything, which was if you're a $16 billion brand or, or company, how do you allocate focus towards $1 billion business in that? And what is the right level of focus? And that to me was just such an interesting front row seat. And Gap gave me everything that I wanted from a resources perspective to figure it out. And I think they all kind of were like, we're not sure what to do with her, but we're happy she's here. <laughs> and for about like two, three years, I basically chugged through all these different problems um, and moved from San Francisco to London to actually do a lot of business development with a franchise business, which was an incredible experience. And just loved working abroad, have always loved working with true international teams and just the real diversity around the table that you learn and that you stretch out of this American mindset and really just understanding how businesses run, you know, in the different parts of the world and the different ways you do business. 
like Gap India launch, which was such a fun experience. And just how does a treasury work in India? How do you work with a franchisee where they may also be the producer of the product? You know, what's the right FX relationship? You know, everything like that. And it's this really interesting convergence of finance, business development, and the supply chain, which is all franchises, quite frankly. Because when you are selling a franchise, when you're a franchisor, your job is to get the product there on time with a strong brand behind it at unit economics that work on both sides. So just like a really interesting business education. I moved from the UK back to the US because I lost my visa because of Brexit. And I basically landed at the Gap brand office in New York and started to think about what did I want to do next. So I started to look around. And I had been at you know large companies and my space in Gap. I mean, I was manually cutting purchase orders at two o'clock in the morning with a one merchant. So I would say we were pretty nimble and we were pretty entrepreneurial, but I really had never built anything from zero to one. And so I started to think about like, what are the places that I could build zero to one, but in a larger environment. And, you know, I've never thought of myself as sort of like the founder energy of like, aha, I hit my head and now I have this idea. And so I, I kind of said like, what's out there? And I put my resume on LinkedIn. My whole career, unfortunately, is like a LinkedIn commercial now. But I put my resume on LinkedIn and I was immediately uh, recruited by like a headhunter for this company called ZX Ventures. And ZX Ventures is a very interesting business. It's the venture capital and the innovation org of AB InBev. And so it falls under a corporate venture capital group. CBCs in the last five years, 10 years now, have gotten very, very large. And ZX Ventures is one of the originals. And I think, I mean, strong bias, I think it's one of the best because it had the benefit of really thinking about what is the point of corporate venture capital and how do we, as a corporation that has a large balance sheet, that has a lot of brands, that has a lot of functions, how do we place investments in innovation and in companies that will help us protect against future disruption so we can maintain market share? Very, very strategic group of people, great founding story, and very, very strong cultural ethos in ZX Ventures. Um, But I was part of like what I would call like wave 1.5 of ZX Ventures is like early 2017 when they're really starting to think about how they could disrupt themselves. And basically looking across the beer industry and looking at the market forces that were happening around premiumization, around women buying, around health and wellness, and saying we have 350 global brands. We have many, many nations that are underneath our, our company. How do we leverage these assets? And how do we build the next phase of our business? Um, so it was a super fun place to work. Really, really fun. And beer is amazing. Just as a a culture, the brands are great. The liquid is fantastic. I love beer. Um, But most of all, it was this amazing innovation environment where my first day they handed me a laptop and were like, go build a business. But the thing I loved about ZX was they were laying investments and they were laying bets across like the destabilization aspects of the CPG industry. So first and foremost, e-commerce, right? How does a customer interact with your brands in an e-commerce environment versus through a retailer environment? And for those of us in D2C businesses, that feels like table stakes and it's like, well, obvious. But if you get inside a large CPG, they have no tools and no insight into it. And that is why Amazon has been so fundamentally important and also destabilizing for the CPG industry because Amazon basically is just a large reseller, right? Just Kroger. It's another version of Kroger, but it's digitized and figuring out how all these brands come to life. And this is all CPG. This is not just ABN Bev. In that environment takes tons of focus, tons of teams, just to say, like, how do we sell a thing on Amazon? This is where I love light, fast D2C businesses. Because if I was like, oh, how do I sell a thing on Amazon? I just go figure it out, right? Like one person. And so it's this really interesting thing about how do you force these innovation models in these large machines? 
e-commerce. They had a whole group thinking about home brewing. They had a whole group thinking about um, just craft beer in Latin America, which is a great story. And then where I sat, which is brand experience. And branded experiences was basically this hypothesis that you had 350 different brands that people loved. But how could you sell them something if they didn't want to buy beer anymore? And I was like, what a weird and interesting challenge. This idea that you don't have to do the initial brand building, but you have to build the reason to believe. Um, So I went over in the early part of 2017 really to like test my entrepreneurship skills and say, how do I take these brands and build something real? So for two years, I traveled around the world with a creative director and we would like land in a market. We'd grab a local resource who spoke the language. We would go to a bar and we would just sit and we would say, what are the brands we have here? Who is drinking them? Why are they drinking them? And how do we sell them more things? Just like a super simple design thinking kind of like linear product build. What would you do though in that bar? Like, would you be actually talking to people or like, what did it look like? I love a weird customer safari. I'm a terrible ENTJ. So I could just walk up. Hello, how are you? Do you like this? But also just like watching and, and the consumer behavior you can see in a dark bar, especially when people are not watching is just so interesting and like watching for the micro connections. And, you know, in South Korea, the majority of craft beer bars are filled with women from two to 6 p.m. And it's not because women are alcoholics. It's because they like finish their day earlier. And there's a cultural practice that once women get married, they they don't work any longer. And there's this interesting like holding pattern of these highly educated women who are looking for things to do during the day that are meaningful with their cohort. And so how do you build the products and experiences for them that create a more meaningful life that they want to enjoy? And how do we do it under the lens of these brands? Similarly, in Belgium, you know, sitting at a bar in Belgium, watching people drink Leffe brand, which is like an incredible Abbey beer brand. Who's drinking it? Men, 45 to 55 years old. They're drinking one after work with a friend. And then the moment food hits the table for kind of a pre-dinner snack, they switch over to wine because of the perception that wine and spirits match food better. So how do you stop that switching behavior? And how do you capitalize on the fact that they already love the brand and, and build a bigger brand moment? Make food. Yeah. And it's interesting that you had to kind of be on the ground to get those insights, though, because of I know there's like the three tier system where you don't really get your consumer data in the alcohol industry. And so it's interesting thinking about like the workaround that you had to do to even understand like who's actually drinking, you know, these products. Exactly. And like the N of one is the best like consumer data you can ever capture because as long as you're receptive, as long as you do like a good, you know, job of like hitting a lot of different diverse pools, it's always powerful to just talk to people who consume your brand or consume anything in your category. For me, I love competitor shopping. Like I love going through other people's flow for us, you know, from an e-commerce perspective. And I love thinking about who their customers are. I love when I meet somebody who eats territory, but I really love when I meet somebody who eats a competitor because my number one question is why? Yeah. And they'll just be like, well, you know, I like the flavor or this about it. And you just learn so much. And you're right. In alcohol, the three-tier system is very, very rigid, but it actually, it's more rigid when you're selling beer, and I was not selling beer. I'm selling like t-shirts, glassware, apparel, food, 14 categories, 3,000 SKUs, anything you can dream of, quite frankly, all through direct-to-consumer websites and just really rapidly bringing those products to life. But this interesting moment of know thy consumer and you can build a closer relationship. And I think that that insight moment is so important for founders and for, you know, anybody who works in D2C is like, who is the customer? Why do they buy? That should always be the heart of what you do. So I did it for two years. I traveled all around the world. Great life, side note. And it's it's so fun. You know, it was just like the most fun you'd ever have building business. We had a tremendous amount of success. Like the first year was all D2C and it was kind of in obvious products like glassware, some licensing of apparel. The second year, we started to get into very weird things. We got into food, which is a longer um, like time to market. 
We got into experiences, education. How'd you come up with those though? I'm like very curious. Like you're sitting there watching people drinking beers and whatever they're doing. And then you're like, let's launch a food product. Like how did, I want to understand like what the ideation looked like behind the scenes and why was your creative director there? Like what was, what was he doing? So first and foremost, you cannot ideate on your own. Yeah. You need like a team around you and you need to, a team of really great, fantastic people who believe in what you believe and are on the same mission. So we actually were a pod of people for brand experience. And the other half of the pod was building bars and restaurants around the world. So all ex-US, but building Goose Island brew pubs and like boxing cat, like uh, pop-ups in China. And so it was so fun because we would travel as a pod of people and we would talk about the brands and we talk about them in a way that if you owned the brand, you probably wouldn't. Like if you've ever talked to a brand manager for like any big company, they'll be like, this, my brand stands for this. And it's like, no, but like really who, who is your brand? Like, what is it? And like, we would think about the things that would embody the values. And then we would actually just be like, what if it's a refrigerator that tells you when you're out of beer because you're drinking in your home with your friends in your man cave? What if it's a dart set that sits here and just Think about it in the lens of like, who uses it? Why will they use it? And then the most important thing is, will they buy it? Because let me tell you, people will take anything for free, but can you actually sell something? And can it connect into the brand message of lifestyle is the much harder thing. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise, and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. And were you testing for that to understand like if something could actually sell before you ever launched it? Tons of testing. We would do kind of like in the, you can't really do this so much in Facebook anymore, but you used to be able to launch like fake Facebook ads just to see how people would adopt it. Mm-hmm. Um, we would do uh, like surveys at the front of Walmart when we were doing like Walmart sell-ins and things like that. We would go to like concerts and events, always where we had the right to play. But that's the amazing thing about AB InDev. Internationally, globally, they have so much reach that it's like, if you want to stand at a concert and talk to people who are going to like a rap concert, there's plenty of places to do it and plenty of rights, and just literally talk to them and survey them and see how they interacted with products, see what was saleable, see what wasn't. Always A-B testing and learning. And the perception of value for the customer is so hard to figure out, especially in beer and especially in beer merchandise, because you probably have a whole bunch of branded merchandise at home. It was probably all free when you work in tech. Mm -hmm. You got a lot of free t-shirts in your life. So what makes you buy one is quality. And perception of scarcity, yes, but it's also quality or something special that's around it. And so how do you create those quality moments with quality products? And that's like the hard thing, right? And we worked with some of the best, like we worked with some amazing like design agencies as well. And just a lot of ideation. Gifting is a place that I am so passionate, especially having worked in East Asia for so long. Gifting in East Asia is like a whole other thing than we have in the US, but people love to gift. Like, oh, just actually giving something to someone and that it'll be the way it spreads. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, I know this sounds silly, but if you go to, you know, the, the Tokyo airport, I would say like probably 50% of the stores there are just selling gifts for you to bring back with you or to give when you land. And there's this like really intense culture of gifting as like a respect aspect. When you get a gift, you value it really differently than if you get something for free. When you give a gift, you value it differently. And so, especially with alcohol, thinking about the, the role of gifting as like, how do you create something that's really special that you want to give? I talk to my team about this all the time now because like the psychology of a gift is very different than the psychology of a purchase for yourself. And the reception of a gift is super different as well. So I think it's about the nexus of the consumer moment, the consumer need, and what is the right digital and physical product for that need. But for me, I go back to always complexity because you should always be looking to make the most value for the customer in the most simple way possible. Like, is there true value to building your own digital website if Shopify has so much for you, right? I'm not saying no. I'm not saying Shopify above all else, but you really know the value that you provide to your customer so that you're spending all of your very hard-earned resources, whether they be people or money or time, which are all kind of just like a function of each other at this point. But you want to invest those things in the thing that's going to drive the most customer value, because if you can drive that customer value, you can build your moat. You can build that long relationship that you want with the customer. It's very expensive to acquire a customer, especially in the world of direct-to-consumer. How do you maximize that investment you're, you're going to make? And how do you build something that they love? Because then they keep buying. And so it was awesome. We did it for two years. It's amazing because we had so much success and like the kind of success that only happens when you're working with 350 brands that have been built for like 400 years, quite frankly. But for me, I had this moment of like, okay, I built from zero to one to 10 to plus. Now what? Yeah. Before you move on to territory foods, I'm like, I have... One more question I want to hear. While you were there launching new products, like lessons, just because I'm sure everyone listening is like, okay, Ellis has a lot of knowledge around launching companies and seeing what sticks. And maybe if you, you know, didn't have all the budgets and things like that, and we're thinking like how you would start today, knowing what you know, like what are maybe some things you would avoid or what's a lesson you would put into like a new company? Oh my God, that's a phenomenal question. And what I would say is like, we didn't have the budgets is what I'll tell you. It was very much like a startup ethos where they were like, do with no budget. And that was crazy. Um, The number one thing is data. Like the different ways you collect data, the different ways you treat data and a respectful treatment of data as well. Nothing kills me more than to watch like my team, other teams, companies I advise, anything like that, take an insight and then really take it to a place that doesn't belong and kind of like bastardize the insight and be like, well, because we changed this, this. And I'm like, "Mm, let's go back and like really think about that. But that initial learning, especially when you're going for product market fit, comes from data and customer experience. And listen, go stand out in the middle of Union Square and hand out samples of, uh, you know, spent grain granola bars. We did. I did. Right. Just to understand how people would interact with a product that was a waste product. Like, would they buy it? Did they understand it? Did they like the flavor? You know, there is this like aspect of just learn. And the best way to do that learning is getting an MVP out and really putting something through it. So the fastest way and the most simple way you can get to that MVP is the best. Um, I love Fiverr. Um, I love Upwork. I love asking people for help. I love grinding things late at night. And I think that, you know, you really do have to have a lot of energy to, to launch anything, whether it's in a big business or in a small business or your own thing, you have to have that energy, but you also have to be able to sort of take a step back and be like, what are we doing here? Like, am I creating something that has value? And for me, it's not worth it to do anything that doesn't have a great end product, because if you don't have a great end product that your consumer loves, you don't have a business, full stop. 
The second, you just have marketing, right? You're just a marketing grid. The second thing is you should always be building a product that has profitability on the unit level. Your business can burn dollars because of marketing costs, but you should be able to get through that. But on the core profitability level, your business must make money because otherwise you do not have a business. Full stop. I think people forget that. They're getting back to it nowadays. 2022 is the year that people are starting to be like, hmm, maybe I, I should evaluate what I've been doing. I know, but like nothing kills me, especially in the physical world, because like I used to say to like the marketing teams for like some of the more premium brands at ABI, and they like, you're selling a $3 bottle of beer in a $46 container and you're charging $20 for it. Like this is never going to be a business. And if you want to just call it a marketing expense, that's fine. But then it's a marketing expense. It's not revenue generating. It is not a business. It does not live on its own. It does not have a wholesale price. Like it's different. And I think like understanding those, those things are just so hard. You'll notice that in my background, I didn't tell you about the time I went to have like a cool MBA experience. And that's because I don't, I don't have one. So didn't get my MBA. Have no problem with that. Still built a lot of businesses and learned a lot. But I think you always have to be thinking about your education and business and you should not rest on like your laurels, so to speak. Look up, look around, meet people, go to mentoring events, networking events. Yes. But like find the thing that's right for you. And I think that you'll start to carve out this like education for yourself. And that changes, right? Like as you go through your career. And I'll tell you like one of my favorite things that I have to control so much is I love mentoring entrepreneurs in like the C to A stage. Like I spent the morning with one this morning because I feel that in the last, you know, six years, eight years, 10 years, I have learned so much about go to market, about testing, about where to put your focus, when to spend your resources, that my hope is that I can help someone else figure that out faster, right? And they can find that efficiency in their own space Um, because I didn't really have many people doing it for me, different kinds of mentors. Mm Mm-hmm. So now I want to hear about your next jump. You started getting a little antsy at ZX Ventures. You were looking for your next thing. And then bam, you're a CEO. Like what Uh, happened in between? If only it was so linear. (laughs) Um, No. So I was at ZX Ventures. I'd been there for two years and very much was having the moment of, is my dream to be a vice president at ABMBIV? And it was just not. Right. It's a great place to spend your whole career. It was not for me. And so I started like looking around. And the other thing that had happened was I was starting to get very, very sick. And for me, health has been really difficult, not my whole life, but definitely as an adult. And I, um, I went through, well, I lost my father to a stage four glioblastoma, which is brain cancer, when I was 21 years old. And he was ill when I was in college. And it's a very foundational time to have a parent be very, very ill and actually left for a whole semester and could have graduated early, graduated on time. But when I came back from that very traumatic experience, like first and foremost, just like being a 21-year-old who just lost a parent is is horrible. There's like the grief cycle, but you're also at this like mortality moment where it's like, what's going to happen to me? And for me, I started to say, am I also going to die from cancer? And we have tons of cancer in my family, like all over the place. And I went to the doctor and I said, am I going to die from cancer? And they said, probably. And I was like, wow, undone by that. Because I was like, what do you mean probably? What doctor says probably? Oh, you know. Like, they don't always have the best bedside manner. Yeah. But, but the fact of the matter was like genetically, there's clearly a predisposition in your family towards cancer. You know, aunt had, you know, uterine cancer and breast cancer and you have kidney cancer in your family and your father just passed away. Like there's probably going to be cancer here. So I said, what can I do? And they said nothing. And that is where I actually started to have like productive energy because I was like, I don't believe that. 
Like, I don't believe that with the incredible minds we have in medicine and the research we have on the microbiome and everything like that, we can't figure this out. And so I started to do a lot of research in cancer prevention diets, and I started to do a lot of research just in different ways of eating, quite frankly, because I was always kind of sick. I had like terrible cystic acne, like all this stuff. And what I found was this really interesting guy called Dr. Mark Hyman. I've heard of him, actually. He's a pretty big brand in functional medicine. But at that point, it was like 2010, he was not. And functional medicine was not a brand at all. And functional medicine was like the part of medicine that nobody wanted to talk about because it was like the hippies. Come to Austin. That's like what it's all about here. Everyone's (laughs) like, you're going to a normal doctor? Why? (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly right. But I loved functional medicine because it was a systems idea around medicine. And it was basically like if you have inflammation in one part of your body, other parts will have a reaction because of the system of your body. And as a technologist, that just made sense to me. Like if a piece of your code is broken in your billing cycle, a bunch of other things could definitely go wrong. Like it's like the same idea, right? Yeah, same, same. (laughs) Same, same. And so I was kind of like, well, this totally makes sense. And so I started doing a bunch of just like A-B testing with my own body. This is like in 2010, 11. And found like I found a bunch of reduction diets. I cut gluten, sugar, dairy out of my diet when I was in my early 20s and was feeling better. Quite frankly, just was feeling better. Like right, pretty soon, like right away. Yeah, like pretty soon right away. And I think like, you know, I don't eat gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free right now. But like if you have a problem, like if you are always feeling fatigued, if you're always feeling tired, if you're always feeling bloated, an anti-inflammatory diet and a reduction diet for like a two-week period will really help you just understand what's going on. And then you slowly add things back. Right. And you slowly like learn your own sensitivities, but like cleaning your body out is a hard mental thing. And you don't want to go the other direction. This is not a permanent lifestyle. This is not something that you should be like living. It's just about giving your system a break to recover and then adding things that could be potentially inflammatory back in. It's a very, very regimented thing to do. It worked really well for me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what fasting is even like helpful for with like people with gut issues is like just giving your body a break to heal. A break. And whether fasting is meant for people or not just depends on what you're struggling with, but like actually just giving your body a break. A hundred percent. So fast forward, I had been at CX Ventures for two years. I was on the road 75% of the time and drinking lots of beer. And I was super inflamed, like for lack of a better term. And so I said, okay, Pulling it step back, like I have this big thesis on complexity that kind of has driven my whole career on the backbone and just like always thinking about what we're doing, but always thinking about the way it works. I have experience now in growing a big thing bigger. I have experience from starting zero to one. I've like really cut my teeth in data and D2C. And like these D2C businesses I built with ZX Ventures, like I hand jammed all of the analytics myself with one guy and Power BI. And it was nice. which is like the worst analytics tool on the planet. Yeah. But just like understanding how often do they buy? What do they buy? Like, is it centered around like a theme? Are they women? Are they men? Like demographically, where do they live? Like, how do we do this? And so like really rich in the data. I look at tools like Looker and I'm like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. Because like I was doing this like in Excel. Yeah. And, and so it was just a really interesting time to be very, very engrossed in it. And I said, for what I do next, I want to work in a company that has a great end product. I want to be part of like a super values aligned mission. Like I don't want to spend my time with anybody that isn't like kind of marching towards the the same drama I am around community, around health, around like making a better world. Um, And I wanted to work in health and wellness because I sort of was like, I have been through this up and down journey with my own health. And food is really interesting because if you think about the way wellness has been messaged in food, pretty much up until like 2010, it's like very diet culture. And it's like, 
you know, your parents would have talked about like low fat for diet and hundred calorie snack balls packs and things like that. All the false things we were taught back in the day. <laughs> yeah. And I think like as a child of the eighties, I feel like I got a lot of them for sure, because it was like all this like weird information about health that still kind of sits with me. Yeah. But I started to think, you know, my own journey was that I got very into like naturalistic eating. I cut gluten, sugar and dairy out. All my friends thought I was totally crazy. Like they were like, oh, you're so extra because I was like, I don't want bread with this. Now everywhere has a gluten-free menu. It's like not weird at all. But what happened was there was like a core of people that were kind of early biohacker consumers. They had good results, usually in weight loss, because that's what people really want to talk about in America. But they had like, they had good results in a good life. And I think that was the, the interesting thing that people started to say, like, wait, how can I do this too? And what happens is there's paleo. That's really the, the start of the naturalistic food movement. It's in like 2010, 11, 12 timeframe. Paleo becomes primal. Primal becomes Whole30. Melissa Urban and the team there are doing a fantastic job talking about like 30 days to reset your life and then what you do afterward. And then Whole30 kind of becomes keto, which becomes this like interesting fringe. And then keto goes way mainstream. And this is like today's show, like Al is like losing like 100 pounds eating keto. And so it's this nice cycle. And so in 2018, when I started looking around, I said, you know, who's, who are the leaders in this space? And this was right before keto really started. And I found this company called Territory. So I'm not the founder. And I found it on LinkedIn. This is why my resume is like a podcast for LinkedIn. Like you posted your resume or they had, hey, a CEO position's open here and you applied. No, they had like a director of finance. They had some random yeah. position. Okay. And so I like reached out to them and I was like, what is this business? Like, what, what do they do? And the website was like jump ropes and food. And I was like, I don't understand this at all. And like from a consumer mindset, I was like, who is this for? <laughs> like, I just can't even like, it's so unapproachable that it's like, what is this? And I met the recruiter, a woman named Hillary, who I'm very still very close with. And she was like, we all believe, we're a group of like 40 people that believe that healthy food can change your life and it makes you a better person. And like, maybe that means like losing weight or maybe it means something else for you, but like making it easy to eat well is all we do. And I was like, I need this product because my whole life I've had a challenge with eating well and I gave it up when I was a consultant. I gave it up, and, but I like have always known the way to treat my body and I could just never do it. Why? right? Like what's my customer need that is being not met? And the answer is it's really hard. I lived in New York City and so I was eating Chinese food, you know, from the place down the street every single night. And so I said, this is amazing. I met the founder, Patrick, and he had founded the business at that real nexus of the, like the paleo movement. He was very ingrained in the CrossFit community. And to get the full impact of CrossFit, you have to eat paleo food and a clean diet. He was a software engineer in his early forties. And he basically was like, I'm not going to learn to cook for myself now. Like what are my options? And I love the founding story because Patrick went out and he found a paleo caterer and he said, will you make me fresh prepared meals every single week? And she said, sure, but not just for you. And she's still part of our chef network, parenthetically. And so he went to his gym and he's like, does anybody else want to do this? And the first week, six people said yes. And then six became 10, became 20, became all the other gyms in Northern Virginia. Oh, that's great. And the business was born. Wow. So amazing. And by the time I showed up in 2010 or 2018, They'd built this really beautiful business, very tightly knit with the Paleo CrossFit community. And they'd grown it entirely through word of mouth. And it was like an incredible high quality product that nobody could access unless you're part of like this CrossFit community. And you actually even used to pick up the food through a gym. So it was like a very tight piece. They had launched direct to consumer in early 2018. And when they did that, it was right after they took some venture capital dollars and venture capital dollars, tremendous pressure to grow, go find new markets. They said, okay, they launched their first Facebook ad, November of 2017, really late for a company founded in 2011, side note. And the whole business just changed. 
because that consumer was no longer a paleo CrossFitter picking up their food from a gym who believed what they believe. All of a sudden, it was a 70% female working professional who was looking to supplement their lifestyle with healthy food. Complete shift. And so I remember the first time I met Patrick and we were talking about it. And I was like, well, who's your core consumer? Like, why do they buy? And he told me, and I was like, are you sure? Like, well, how do you know? And so by the time I showed up in late 2018, I came in originally as VP of finance, strategic finance, to help them just allocate the venture capital dollars that they brought in because they had kind of two business models and they weren't really sure where to put the funds, everything like that. I basically was like, let's learn who this customer is and let's get really, really, really intent on what they want. And then let's build our product roadmap around it. Let's build our culinary roadmap around it. Let's build our business development around it. And let's get tight, tight, tight to the consumer because I believe in what we believe. And going back to like my core three pieces, first and foremost, the territory product is chef's kiss. Delicious. Like if you don't eat, okay, if food tastes bad, you're never going to eat it. Like very simple concept. But food is amazing. And the reason it's amazing is because the original business model is still the business model. It's a distributed chef network of experts who actually make real food. They're restaurants, they're caterers, they're experts in their own style of cuisine. And what we do is we commercialize the consumer demand on healthy eating and get it to them and then bring it together through a logistics network. Super smart. Wow. So powerful. Everyone else in this space owns a kitchen. Patrick was never going to own a kitchen. He's not a, not a chef. He's a software engineer. So really, really powerful. The food product, excellent. Uh, this is what I always say to the team. As long as the food is good, we will prevail. Food product is really good. Super strong gross profit net of delivery. Very, very important in this space. And especially like you see now, especially like the 15-minute delivery companies and things like that just like crashing because I'll give hot tip. There's no unit economics to be had in 15-minute delivery. <laughs> like, yeah. There's just like, as a logistician, as a supply chain person, like unless you're at a certain scale, it's really not going to work out for you. Yeah. What about two hour? <sighs> I was talking to Fast AF founder and it's interesting hearing, but it's like premium goods on that network. And I think it's all within two hours. What about two hours? If you're not Amazon, what do you think? Let me hear your hot take on that. My hot take is that it depends on the scale, depends on the network you're leveraging, and it depends on the uh, tight geo radius. Because like, if you're tight enough, you can do anything, right? You can do it with one truck, you can do it with a courier. It's all about the way that you scope it out. And listen, the key is definitely to have a high margin product on the top side, because mm -hmm. it's a high value, high margin product, yes. However, how often is the customer rebuying that? And how much does it cost you to acquire the customer? Because if I am fast and I'm offering a $100 off of my first order, and I'm Ellis and I buy an assortment of $200 candles, right? I've now got a 50% discount on that. How likely am I to buy those two candles again? And do you have a wide enough assortment at that margin to be able to support it? So like what I love about this business is like, these are logistics heavy businesses, supply chain heavy businesses, and financial heavy businesses. So I could I can talk about it all day. And I love to also spar on it because it's like, yeah, they're super complex, but they're also super interesting, right? And who needs $100 candles in two hours. Like, why do you need that? Like, <laughs> I do, Ellis. Jeez, that's every, every morning I wake up, I'm like, I really just need some good expensive candles within two hours. But what else do you need, right? Like, what else <laughs> is in that basket? So I think it's really yeah. interesting. But I looked at our unit economics, super solid unit economics because the company was built as a small business. They didn't take venture capital dollars for the first six years after they founded, which means they blood, sweat, tears, credit card, family, borrowing, everything. And what that means is they had a really, really tight gross profit, like really, really strong unit economics, um, which you know I'm forever grateful for today. We like blow the pants off of everybody in our sector. And then I looked at the team and I was kind of like, you know, is this the team that's going to go the the long run? And what I saw was this amazing group of people that really believed. 
and really believed in a couple of core things that have evolved over the last four years for sure. But we really focus on, are we good for the body? Like, are we making your life better, making you healthier? Are we good for the planet? Because our responsibility is to do something better, not just for our own bodies, but for future generations. And then are we good for the local economy as well? Because as a marketplace of local vendors, we have a responsibility back to the local communities that we serve. And for us, our distributed chef network is hyper diverse. It's 36% uh, Black person of color, Latinx owned businesses, and 42% women owned businesses. They're all small businesses. We don't work with any big corporates or anything like that. And they need help. And like the, the fact of the matter is in, during the pandemic, you know, 2020 rolled around and our chef network was smaller then. We've grown up pretty significantly. But like day one of the global pandemic, everyone's like, what are we going to do? And it was this amazing sense of collective responsibility of saying like, we have long-time relationships with a lot of these, these partners. We really think of them as partners. We know a lot of their economics, like a franchisee model. We like know they need to make money. We know we have to help them make money. And how can we leverage the fact that we are venture-backed? How do we can leverage the fact that we have more access, more resources to support them as they're all small businesses? Um, so it's a really interesting part of our business that, that I love, quite frankly, coming out of that, like, my parents owned a small business. I've always thought a lot about the local economy. And then as we think about just like the health of the global economy and the health of like United States economy, I really believe that the culinary economy is an entry point for a lot of folks into a more business focused like mindset. And so how do you create positive jobs and positive career tracks out of that versus kind of predatory, which it definitely sits in now. Yeah. How are you keeping track of, I mean, I'm thinking about this like distributed network. I mean, obviously distributed everything is a very big trend these days. Yes. But how do you keep track of all that to make sure the standards are staying high and customers are, I mean, because in a way it's like you have all these mini business owners that you have to trust to actually deliver on your mission from like territory foods perspective. And it has to seem like it's kind of coming from your brand. Like, how do you play that balance? Yeah. So it's exactly like a franchisee, side note, exactly like a franchisee. Yeah. Like when Gap franchises out Gap brand to like Altair, right? They're trusting Altair to execute on behalf of the Gap brand principles with the right product, with all the right standards, right? So same kind of trust network. What we've done is we've built software. And this is where I am so proud of like the distributed model that we've built and the way that we have created our software and our standards and our processes and things like that. But the first thing I'll say is not everybody can be part of the territory network. We're not an open marketplace. It's a constant pushback from, uh, from investors. Like, why not just open it to everyone? Everyone can be a part. And the answer is it's food. And standards are important. Quality is important. Everything on the territory platform is free of gluten, sugar, dairy, inflammatory oils, carrageenan, maltodextrin, no binders, no fillers, no artificial flavors, none. Like very, very clean food. We start from this space of clean food and we create a marketplace and a mindset that when you come, everything on the menu is healthy for you. And you can tell me that you're eating Whole30 and you can choose to be vegan half the time and we don't judge. You know, you come to us, it's about bounty, not restriction. And we allow people to eat sort of any which way they believe healthy is under this framework of, of macro level health. And the number one way people eat territory is as, as an insurance policy in their fridge to make sure they're not ordering seamless every night. Yes, some people use us for experimentation in different diets and they'll try something out and they say, you know, everybody's talking about plant-based. How do I eat more plant-based? Or, you know, I wanted to try that keto diet. But the majority of people that eat with us are literally just trying to do a tiny bit better every single week. And we make it really joyful to do that. So for us, the chef relationship is about trust. And it's about making sure that they always have our sourcing standards and we do things like audit invoices and we have a, a chef management system and things like that. 
but it's also about having a two-way relationship with the chef where we are taking all the consumer demand. So we capture about 150,000 points of consumer demand every single week. We batch it up and we look at it by locality and we can um, identify sort of like the culinary trends, the protein trends, and the macro level trends. So let's say in Los Angeles, we're seeing Southeast Asian, chicken center of the plate, ketogenic profile. We go to all the chefs in our network that conserve that locality and we say, do we have a recipe in somebody who already makes something that looks like this? If we do, we put it on the menu. If we don't, we say, do we have somebody in our network that makes amazing Southeast Asian food? Do we have somebody who makes really great chicken because chicken is hard to make well? Do we have somebody who makes like really great keto food without making it oily? If we don't have that chef, we will go find a chef and we have a reserve kind of network of folks that are ready to join our network and excited to be part of us. Um, if we do have the chef, we'll actually take it out to the chef and say, you know, we think it's $13.95. We think it's going to be this volume. We'd like it to be this style. The chef does the concepting in their kitchen with their staff, their overhead, their headcount, everything like that. So they're getting double, if not triple utilization on all the investments they've already made. And then we commercialize it on their behalf. And then it's an iterative process. And so there is the science of the technology and the systems that make it all come together. But then there's also the art, because this is food. And that's very important to remember. Yeah. And are all your chefs learning this? Like when you have a recipe, they're like, you know, Stephanie in Austin wants this kind of macaroni and cheese that's healthy. Like, do you have all the chefs learn the recipe or are you really focused on like the one chef who can serve me? Yeah, we don't actually usually share across uh, like chefs or across network at all, mostly because taste preferences are really specific. Mm -hmm. So what we have in Austin is very different than what we have in Los Angeles. We also have dynamic pricing so that we're able to give different prices based on where people are. And all the networks are local. So these are not chefs that are making like a ghost brand. They're not making like the Territory Foods brand. Everything's under the banner of Territory, but the chef's name is on it. They're creating the recipe. They own the recipe. Like it's very, very much like authentic to them. And what we've found like in terms of quality is that when a chef's name goes out on that package, the quality is better. Full stop. Oh yeah. Because they have a business that they're trying to run. And for us, we really aim to be like, I would say like 25 to 35% of a chef's business. We try not to be over 55, 65%. We are designed to sit in their dark hours of a catering kitchen or of a restaurant. We're designed to help them get extra revenue at a high gross profit net of delivery, high gross margin value, but we're not we're not running commissary kitchens. That's not our business. Yeah, that's smart. I mean, really good incentive structures, thinking about like how to get the best out of them while also not having them rely on you fully, where if you're like, well, now we're not going to serve that anymore because the demand is gone. It doesn't like crush their whole business. Exactly. And we use a lot of predictive analytics. We have a very, very like big data science engine. So we can see when something is starting to trend out and we have like culinary NPS score and we have meal level NPS score and we can see all the trends. And it also allows us to innovate much faster. So we can basically say, like, I would say it's a four-week innovation cycle from data to plate, where we can see, like, okay, this health and wellness trend is coming up. Or sometimes we, like, put them on the outside. So we'll be like, we want to talk about hibiscus, right? Like, we do things like that, too, yeah. uh, from marketing and from what we think is, like, trending. But we try to let the consumer data come forward what I'll say is like, we saw ketogenic eating in late 2018, right when I first came out, when I first came into the business, we saw it coming up. We launched our first keto program faster than anybody else in the market. Comparison standpoint, we launched ours in February of 2019 and SlimFast, the leading diet brand in the United States, launched their first keto ad and first keto focused product as a tester like eight months later, right? These are just different innovation cycles. But what we can also do is we can see bigger trends. Like during the pandemic, people just wanted comfort food. Right. They wanted things that could feed more people at home because now this wasn't necessarily for working professionals going to work. It was for people trying to feed their families, right? 
And so we have this like really great reflexive muscle of saying, like going to the chefs and saying like, this is what we see. But we also have a team that like goes out and scouts the best chefs and saying like, we want the people who excel at X, Y, Z. That's the art and the science. It's never just about science. There is an art to human engagement. There's an art to what people love. That's the most fun is the human element and the, the network and the partnerships that our business is forged in. Mm, wow, that's amazing. I know I could keep going with you for like many hours. We'll have to schedule a round two. Yeah. The last piece that I want to leave this interview with, because I don't ask many people this question, but for you, I feel like we have similar backgrounds and you probably think kind of like I do. How are you preparing territory foods for the next year or two with, you know, watching inflation and possible recessions and markets crashing? And like, what's maybe the one thing you're doing or one tip you give to other commerce companies who are starting today to kind of like prepare themselves for the next like couple of years? The first thing is just take a deep breath. Like first and foremost, we are at the start of what is going to be a very long voyage. <laughs> like let's all make sure we have the, the ammo or the fuel in the tank to get there. And I think the first thing is to not panic and just to take a deep breath. The second thing, and this is what I'm telling folks that I, and I ask us, but I also ask anybody I'm talking to is like, do you really have a business or is your business just propped up by venture capital dollars. Because if your business is propped up by venture capital dollars, doesn't have a path to profitability and doesn't have core unit economics, you may not have a business and you may never have a business. And that is a hard reality in this moment. But you should know, because if you don't know that and you set out on this next 18 months, like you're probably going to end up six months from now up the river. Whereas right now you may have more choices, quite frankly. For us, I look very deeply and I love that we have a business. I love that we have something with core unit economics that are strong. And then it's very much about like, okay, what does it need to look like to be funded for the next 18 to 24 months? What's the landscape going to look like when we go out to raise so on and so forth? But I think if you start with those, first and foremost, take a deep breath. I'm I just breathe myself. Like I tell the team to do this all the time. Take a deep breath and then just really go back to do you have a business? Like does the customer love what you have? What does it look like? And I think this is a moment where we're all going to pull in tight I hope this is a moment where the entrepreneurship community comes together a lot tighter than it has been. But I also think it's a moment of rationalization. You may get bids to be acquired or to merge with your largest competitor. You may get those things. You may want to think about them differently and not because it's like you're giving up or your idea isn't as good, but you can import some of the things that you're missing that you would have used venture capital dollars to get through a like-by-like acquisition or through a merger. And you should not have any weird ego about that. You should remember that the capital markets are different. I think the bigger thing is that I believe fundamentally that consumer has changed, full stop. And I think that the stat, I think it's like 40% of all venture capital dollars in the last 10 years have gone to Facebook and Google. Yeah. That's tough. Yep. That's yep. tough. And I will talk to my consumer investors, like they will believe it. But I think that the combination of the privacy changes that we saw in 2021 with the current funding environment, with the oversaturation of direct-to-consumer companies, and the fact that the direct-to-consumer companies that became $100 million plus versus the ones that fizzled out are not easy to tell why, right? I look up at apparel a lot because I come from that world and don't touch it any longer. But if you gave me 10 D2C apparel brands, if you were like, pick the winner out of here, I don't know if I would be able to because they all kind of look the same. I think those things are coming to an end. Um, and as a consumer, I'm kind of psyched for it because I really am done with ads. So I think like you should look at your business and say, do I have a business and how am I going to grow that business in this environment? What are the things I own? What is my reason to be? Like an investor will call that your moat, but what is the thing that makes you special and how do you really capitalize on that versus kind of just doing the things that you've been doing before? And that's the question I ask us all the time. I would ask every founder is like, just don't just do the things you've been doing because you think it's the right thing. 
take a step back, look at the people, time, and money you have. Those are your resources. And say, how am I going to lay this for the largest enterprise value for myself, for others, for the world in the long run? And make sure there's a business there because a lot of times there's not. Yep. Wow. All right, Alice, that's a great place to end. Wise advice. Thank you so much for being an awesome guest. Like I said, we need to have you back for a round two in the future. But until then, where can people follow along with your journey and what you're up to? Well, definitely check us out on territoryfoods.com. You can see all our updates there and there's a lot more interesting things coming in the future. So stay tuned in. We've got a lot of really great stuff happening in the back half. Awesome. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks so much. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.